Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your weekly true crime paranormal podcast with me, Blake Lambert-Hack. This season, I am covering cases from New York City, specifically Manhattan because, you know, each borough is like its own city. I learned apparently Brooklyn is would be the fourth largest city in the United States if it was its own city. So maybe down the line, I'll do a full season um, Brooklyn or, you know, Queens or whatever. But there is plenty of true crime paranormal cases in the island of Manhattan. And tonight is no different. We're going to get into one of the most iconic places in New York City. A tourist's dream location, the Empire State Building. Who knew? Who knew the Empire State Building would be haunted? I didn't. I've never been in the Empire State Building. I've walked by it plenty of times, but we'll get into that in a second. First, I have to talk about my birthday was last Saturday. I went to the Kentucky Derby. I bet on horses. I got sunburnt. I ate. I drank mint juleps. A grand old time. I lost all my bennings. I didn't win a single race, but that's okay. You don't go there to win thousands of dollars. That's for casinos. You go to the horse races to be entertained. And losing, you know, 30, 40 bucks, worth it. Worth it. Though, I said it was supposed to rain all day on Saturday for the Kentucky Derby, so I didn't really plan for sun because it said it was supposed to be overcast all day cloudy but we get there and it's sunny as fuck i don't have anything to protect my pale ass skin because i've been in hibernation for months on end and i am burnt to a crisp specifically my chest and my head i've already started peeling this is like two days after the derby i'm already peeling hopefully by the weekend i will be tan tanner we'll see but i haven't had a burn like this in a long time but on top of that it decides to rain after the derby is over like immediately after the derby is over so everybody's trying to leave churchill downs and downpour everyone's drenched and sunburnt in nice clothes fun hats beautiful dresses and i say that but like obviously not every dress and every hat was beautiful and every suit was beautiful but what a great place to try something new if you want to be a fashionista if you want to be a maxinista What better place to try new clothing than the Kentucky Derby? You could literally wear anything. I saw the Flintstones there. 
there were four people it looked like two couples they were dressed as fred barney betty wilma and the looks were actually kind of giving they looked exactly like them what else did i see there i saw i think my favorite kind of hat i saw was those sheer hats or sheer fascinators i was kind of into the sheer of it all i saw a lot of homemade hats one woman was like, yeah, I bought a cheap hat and then I was going to make my own to save money and then I spent $100 to create my own hat, which is how it always goes. You always go to go crafting, go to Michael's, go to Joanne, go to wherever, but you always end up spending a lot of money. So it's like, do you just buy the $100 hat or do you put $100 worth of work into your hat? I didn't wear a hat because my tan cowboy hat that I brought didn't really match the tan plaid suit I had on. Like the tans weren't correct. And again, it was supposed to rain and I didn't want my wool hat to get soaking wet. But outside of that, the Kentucky Derby was a lot of fun. I would definitely suggest going to it. It's maybe, you know, one of those once in a lifetime situations, though. You can always go back. You can always go back for more. I would like to go back and then, because I was on the infield, so I would like to go back and do like the whole, I don't know if I need a box, but the whole, you know, upper echelon, mingling with the celebrities, mingling with the owners of the horses. That would be nice. That'd be fun. RIP to all the horses that passed away in the Kentucky Derby. I don't know if, I don't know what happened. I don't know if they know what happened, but there were at least four horses that had, that were, I don't know if they died or were put down. I mean, they're dead, but like if it was an injury and they had to put them down because of it, or if they died because of some illness or some, you know, mishandling of sorts I'm not sure I think a trainer was arrested or at least kicked out I I feel like the mystery is still there we don't know all the truth to it but at least four horses it's horrible I love horses horses are beautiful I would love to own a horse one day though I think if I'm going to own a horse I want it to be like a painted horse and if I can't do that, because usually painted horses are more like Mustangs and free roaming. But if I could, if I can't do a painted horse, I would do like one of those really gorgeous gray horses and give it a name like Poupon. Gray Poupon. Or I was thinking Beauty and the Bees where Belle says, try the gray stuff. Oh, not Belle, but you know, try the gray stuff. It's delicious. And they're just naming my horse Delicious. Which is also, I always think of that quote, give it up delicious. So it'd be a fun little delicious poupon. I don't know. One day I'll own a horse. One day I'll have enough money and enough space to own a horse. Because I do love riding horses. Okay, let's get back to New York. There are horse riding places in New York. And I'm, I'm going to do it this summer. I didn't do it last summer like I wanted to. I'm going to do it this summer. I'm very excited. I think you can ride horses through one of the parks or and or along the beach the ocean or something like that so I gotta check it out but New York City 
we're talking about the Empire State Building. Again, I have never been inside the Empire State Building. I think it's 102 floors, but I've walked past it. But as someone who grew up with the Sears Tower in Chicago, the Empire State Building doesn't do much for me. It's not like a tourist location for me. Before I lived here, I never really was like, let's go check out the Empire State Building. It's like once you've seen a skyscraper, you've seen most of the skyscrapers. Like skyscrapers don't really do anything for you. And that's not shade. It's just once you've, again, been to a building over 1,700 feet tall, the Empire's 1,400 feet tall isn't that crazy. Like, what's crazy about the Empire State Building is that it opened in 1931. That's crazy. And the Sears Tower, just for retrospect, opened in 1973. Both were the tallest building in the world at one point. I think the Empire State Building was the tallest for like 40 years. And then the Sears Tower was the tallest for like 20 years after that. Something like that. But crazy. Crazy. The Sears Tower is 110 floors. I'm pretty sure Empire State Building is 102. But tall. They're tall. When it's foggy, you can't see shit. But when you go up there and take a view, it's beautiful. I've been in the Sears Tower. I've been on those push-out elevator-looking rooms that are all glass. And you look down, you're like, wow, I could die. But it's beautiful. And even though the Empire State Building was the tallest in the world when it opened in 1931, it almost came to an end in 1945 when the Empire State Building almost met the same fate as the Twin Towers 56 years later. On July 28, 1945, a B-25 Mitchell bomber was flying from New Bedford, Massachusetts to LaGuardia Airport in Queens, New York City, when a thick fog rolled in in the early morning. Okay, really quick, sorry, I know we just started. LaGuardia Airport, I've been there now a few times. It's gorgeous inside. I know they just spent, did like a huge renovation. So anyone who was there before then is like, LaGuardia is gross, but it's actually stunning now. And there's this ceiling fountain that's really fun and beautiful. And you basically are walking through a mall. It's a pain in the ass to get to from where I live, but it's beautiful. Anyway, a thick fog rolled in in the early morning. July 28th, 1945. And as the bomber approached LaGuardia, air traffic control redirected the plane to Newark Airport in New Jersey instead. There were three men on board the aircraft, the pilot, Lieutenant Colonel William Franklin Smith Jr., Staff Sergeant Christopher Domitrovic, and Navy Aviation Machinist Mate Albert Perna. The redirect took the bomber over Manhattan, but the crew was warned that the Empire State Building was there and that the fog was covering a lot of the higher up floors. So to keep a lookout. What you also have to remember is that the Chrysler Building, which is not very far from the Empire State Building, is also one of the tallest buildings in the world at this time. And both buildings would not be visible due to the fog. 
when the Chrysler building was built, it was the tallest building, but then like the Empire State Building took that over like a year later, not even a year later. So both buildings are engulfed in thick fog. You can't see much of the building at all. Colonel Smith was flying relatively low to have some kind of visibility because air traffic control said you can't fly at a certain height because you would literally not be able to see anything. So flying pretty low. Suddenly, out of nowhere, the Chrysler building appeared in front of the plane. Smith quickly maneuvered around the 42nd Street building. But because of this, it sent Smith, Dometrovic, and Perna directly into the north side of the 79th floor of the Empire State Building. The fuel immediately exploded, filling the offices inside the Empire with flames. The plane had ripped a hole in the building from the 78th floor to the 80th floor through the War Relief Services and the National Catholic Welfare Council. Remember, it's 1945. The war is just ended. One of the engines flew straight through the building and out of the south side of the building, landing on the roof of the Waldorf penthouse, starting a fire on that building. The second engine of the bomber snapped an elevator cable, sending a woman aboard crashing to the bottom. However, the emergency auto brake saved her life, but just seconds after stopping, the plane's engine fell down the shaft and landed on top of the elevator. Witnesses were able to pull the woman from the elevator before it crashed to the bottom. It was a Saturday, so the building wasn't as full as it normally is during the week. About 55 sightseers were on the 86th observation deck. Perna was thrown from the plane and down an elevator shaft where his body remained for two days before being discovered. Smith and Dometrovic were burned to death in the plane. Eleven civilians in the building also died from the crash, and 24 others were severely injured. Elevator operator Betty Lou Oliver was thrown from her elevator on the 80th floor and suffered burns. First aid responders escorted her to another elevator, but while they began their descent, the cables on that elevator snapped, sending them 75 stories to the basement where the elevator crashed. Betty survived the fall, but she suffered suffered a broken pelvis, back, and neck. She has the credit for the world's longest survived elevator fall. Who knew that was even in the record books? I love it. Scary as shit. But what a fun record to hold. Historians and detectives believe she survived because of the cushion of air created by the rapidly falling elevator. So she was basically like floating in the elevator when it crashed. Because 75 odd floors falling, it's a long way to go. And with no controlled break, it'd be a really fun ride, honestly. I mean, go to Six Flags, go to all your theme parks and do the drop. I mean, that's controlled, but like do the drop or even better yet, go to Disney World and do Tower of Terror, one of my favorite rides ever. Anyway, 
basically because it was falling so fast, it created this huge pillow of air underneath the elevator and the floor of the building. So it kind of slowed the car down at the last second. I kind of think of Harry Potter when they were falling off their broom and then someone, you know, casted a little spell. And I think it was Harry who like inches from the ground stopped. Like there was air between him that slowed his roll. A man named Paul Deering was casually working when the plane crashed. He got up and tried to run, but the explosion threw his body through a window where he fell to his death. Most of the others who died, died from the fire caused from the plane engine exploding. An 18 to 20 foot hole was left in the side of the building, but the crash did not affect the structural integrity of the Empire State Building. And you know what? Buildings just aren't built like they were back then. I really don't know how it didn't fuck up the structural integrity. Maybe it hit in the very, like, very precise place where it didn't hit. Or it only took out a handful of steel beams, and so they were able to repair those. I'm not quite sure, but... You know how, like, the Titanic was like, we're unsinkable because you can still flood two of the department, like, two of the compartments and we'll still float, but then more than two were flooded. I think the same thing here. It's like, if the plane took out probably, like, a few more beams, the building probably would have collapsed, but because it didn't, they were like, okay, we got this. We're good. It did cost around a million dollars to repair which is about $10.5 million today. But what shocked me the most is that the Empire was open for business on the following Monday. This happened on Saturday, and everyone still went to work on Monday, less than 48 hours later. You would not catch me dead going back to a building that was just hit by a plane. You would not catch me in that building. Not 48 hours later... Once they had it all fixed, you know, after they did their little construction work and patched the hole and stuff, sure. Sure, I would go back to work, but not with a hole in the middle of the building. Hell no. Hell no. And almost a year to the day... And almost a year later, to the day, another plane narrowly missed flying into the Empire State Building. Again. The unidentified plane flew so close, it scratched the 68th floor. Are you joking? Like, I'm pretty sure they put in laws in place after that where, like, you can't fly over Manhattan. At least unless you have training, because these people, honestly, I get it's foggy. I know you need to go low to ground and you're not used to skyscrapers, but you got to figure it out. You can't just be flying into buildings willy-nilly. 
There's a fantastic documentary about the crash called It Came From the Sky, and it's part of the series Disasters of the Century. It's on YouTube if you're interested, but they interview survivors and their photos from the disaster. I'll post a couple of photos on my socials, but the documentary is very thorough. This tragedy sparked new laws about how high and where you can fly over Manhattan. Now, I'm not going to say I'm afraid of heights because flying doesn't bother me. Roller coasters don't bother me. I actually prefer really high, big drop roller coasters. And I do prefer window seats on planes and front row on the roller coasters. So I wouldn't say I have like a height fear. I've, again, also been in the Cirrus Tower and those glass boxes that hang on the side of the building. So it's fine. But in college, I had choir rehearsals in the Fine Arts Building in Chicago. And that elevator is still hand-operated. And the feeling that your stomach gets when the operator pulls that lever to take you up or down still haunts me today. Still haunts me today. So I cannot imagine how Betty was feeling as she was dropping 70 plus stories in an uncontrolled way. Again, I do think it'd still be a little fun, but obviously in the moment, terrifying. And again, I would not be going to that building two days after it was just rammed into by a bomber. That's vacation time. That's personal time. I'm cashing in on my pay time off and taking a trip away. I'm not going into that building. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. And I do kind of feel bad for the men in the plane. World War II had just ended and they, all three of them had survived the war, which is crazy. One of them was even a German prisoner of war and was set free. So I can't imagine being a prisoner of war during World War II. Another had just gotten home to meet his son for the first time, and his son was 18 months old. It's horrible. But it was concluded that Smith was kind of to blame for the crash. He was... He was really set on flying to Newark, even though everyone told him that the fog was too dense and that he needed to head back to Massachusetts. So from my understanding, he was flying from Massachusetts to LaGuardia, though he, before he even took off, he was like, I want to fly to Newark. I don't want to fly to LaGuardia. When he gets close to LaGuardia, LaGuardia is like, you got to land in Newark. It's too foggy. You can't fly. You can't land here, land in Newark. And then when the fog kept getting thicker and thicker and stuff, I think they were like, no, you can't even land in Newark. You got to go back to Massachusetts where it's clear. That's going to be the closest, clearest runway to land on. And because he was so set on landing on Newark, he kind of just put himself, his passengers, and everybody else's lives in danger. And, uh, yeah, 14 people died that day. And after that, there was a law passed a year later saying people who were victims of the accident could sue the government. So that's kind of cute. So I do think the families of the victims did get compensated for their family members' loss. Because, you know, the military is technically the government. That is the most intense thing to happen to the Empire State Building. But let's take it back to when she was built. 
So before the Empire State Building was even a twinkle in New York's eye, the land was owned by none other than John Jacob Astor, not to be confused with John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. John Jacob Astor was a German-born American businessman who made his fortune in trading fur, smuggling opium into China, and investing in real estate. That is a whole true crime episode on itself, but he was the first multimillionaire in the United States, so that's hot, I guess. The land was passed down in his family, and in 1893, John's grandson, William Waldorf Astor, opened the Waldorf Hotel on the land. Four years after that, William's cousin, John Jacob Astor IV, of course, opened the Astoria Hotel on the same land right next door to the Waldorf Hotel. I guess they were feuding and it was a competition to have two hotels next to each other, even though they were cousins. I don't know. They were trying to outdo each other for whatever reason, but that eventually ended and they did come together and created the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. So combined, the hotels are or were 1,300 bedrooms, which was the largest in the world at the time. Largest hotel in the world, 1,300 bedrooms. By the 1920s, the wealthy of New York City had continued to move north. So if you remember last episode, New York City started where Wall Street is now, so very southern tip of Manhattan. But the wealthy were like, we got money. We don't have to live in slums like this. Let's keep going north where there's more land and we can build huge houses, etc. So the Astor family chose to open a replacement hotel farther north to cater to the rich and sold the original Waldorf Astoria Hotel to the Bethlehem Engineering Corporation in 1928 for around $15 million. About a year later, the hotel closed The company wanted to build an office building on the site, but defaulted on a hefty loan, I guess, and the bank sold the property to none other than the Empire State Incorporated, which was basically just a group of wealthy men that got together and bought this land. They announced that they were going to build an 80-story building, and it was to be the tallest in the world. And you know what? Even though they're wealthy, I'm glad they had a dream, a goal, an ambition to have the largest and tallest building in the world. So they hired architects, Shreve, Lamb, and Harmon, who, because of zoning laws, had to build a building with a larger bottom and smaller top, giving it its pencil-like look, if you will. They had to design within $50 million, and the building had to be ready within 18 months. A little over a year for the tallest building in the world is ambitious, 
if I don't say so myself, the original idea was 50 stories, but it did grow to be 80 stories, which would have been a thousand feet tall. The surrounding buildings were given restrictions so that the top 50 floors wouldn't be obstructed, which is kind of shitty to everybody else around the Empire State Building. I bet it was only restricted because the people who bought the Empire State Building land were wealthy and well-known and white men. Now, this is where it gets fun. Forget the space race. That's nothing compared to the race into the sky in New York City in the 1920s. The race for the tallest building was underway with the Empire State Building the Chrysler Building, and the Bank of Manhattan Building. All competing for the tallest building in the world. Bank of Manhattan Building, which is now called 40 Wall Street Tower, was finished first, coming to 925 feet, making it the tallest in April 1929, followed closely by the 1,046-foot Chrysler Building, finished in October of the same year, 1929. And because of that, the Empire Group immediately started making changes while the building was already underway, which if you ask any architect or interior designer or a landscaper, to change shit when it's already underway is a huge pain in the ass. And it usually comes with a price tag. The Empire Group added an observation deck on floor 86, while the Chrysler's observation deck is on the 71st floor. So, you know, it's a little petty, but we like it. The Empire Group changed the roof design of the Empire State Building. And instead of 50 floors, instead of 80 floors, the Empire State Building would be 1,250 feet tall, and completed on April 11th, 1931, with 102 floors. The final rivet in the building is solid gold. So a little fun fact. A lovely, unnecessary touch, of course. And it's called, the, at the time, it was called the tallest building in the world, all thanks to steel. Which I guess was, you know, a hot commodity, a new construction architect's dream. So the building, the outside was finished, so they had to, you know, do all the interior touches and to make it look so beautiful before that 1945 plane crash. The building had 66 elevator cars that could move at 1,200 feet per minute. Another fun fact, the first electric elevator was built in 1880 in Germany. Who knew? The 66 elevators is a lot, especially, you know, in 1931. They were thinking ahead. They knew. With the Empire State Building being the tallest building in the world for almost 40 years, it has gained significant amount of notoriety to the point where people feel the need to jump from it. In 1986, Two men from London attempted the feat when they leaped from the building's 86th floor. 
They were Michael McCarthy, who was 25 years old at the time, and 27-year-old Alistair Boyd. The 86th observation deck is 1,050 feet from the ground. And what's so dangerous about leaping from the building is that the Empire State Building has many setback, like setbacks built in, where, for example, the Twin Towers at the time were smooth from top to bottom, making jumping from that a lot easier because you could avoid obstacles and the wind wouldn't blow you into, you know, the way the wind moves around building stuff. It wouldn't, it was easier for a smooth surface. Whereas the Empire State Building is rigid, there's setbacks, it's dangerous. And the Empire State Building is also located in such a packed part of Manhattan. So you also had to avoid buildings all around the Empire State Building. And again, it's, they're jumping off of this in 86. So, you know, Manhattan's pretty built up at this point. And because of this, Michael and Alistair had to have special parachutes made. So when they ran from the 86th observation deck, jumped over this gate, this 10-foot gate, leaped, pulled their parachute, and floated to the ground, Michael landed on 31st Street, and Boyd landed on 25th Street. And to disguise their parachutes, the men wore raincoats on their way up to the observation deck. They ripped their raincoats off, Again, climbed that 10-foot fence and then made the jump. However, Michael got tangled on a light post while landing, while Alistair got away. Alistair got away in a cab, whereas Michael was brought to the police station and charged with reckless endangerment, putting on an exhibition without a permit, and unlawful parachuting which I think is a really funny crime. Unlawful parachuting. The best parachuting is in Power Rangers, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie, at the very beginning of the movie, where all six of them jump out of that plane and then parachute to the ground. And Tommy's in, on like a surfboard. Oh, what a good movie. What a good movie. Those two may have been the first to parachute from the Empire State Building, but there was another man who tried to do the exact same thing on April 27th, 2006. Professional skydiver and base jumper Jeb Corliss attempted to jump from the Empire State Building. However, after he climbed over that 10-foot fence, a bystander jumped into action and grabbed Jeb, not allowing him to jump off. Others joined or went to get the security. And when security and the police arrived, they attempted to handcuff Jeb to the outside of the fence. However, the issue and the dangerous part about that was that the winds are so strong that high up that if he was handcuffed to the fence, his fear was that his parachute would shoot off and he would most certainly lost his hands and or arms. Which is so... Ugh, that is so scary 
and gross and no thank you. Being handcuffed to something and then a force just ripping you. But that didn't happen. Don't worry. He eventually, after a heated argument, Jeb was brought back on the building side of the fence where he was arrested. After a trial, Jeb was sentenced to community service and banned from entering the Empire State Building forever. And I do think banning people is funny as if the security guard A, cares enough, B, is brand new and doesn't know who they need to watch out for, or C, Jeb can just like wear a crazy outfit and no one would know that was him. Since then, Jeb has jumped from a helicopter, flying within several feet of the Matterhorn, and followed the mountain down 3,000 feet. He jumped from a helicopter flying by Tianmen Mountain in China. In 2012, Jeb had a horrible accident while flying off Table Mountain in Cape Town, Africa. He broke both his ankles, three toes, and a fibula. He tore his left anterior cruciate ligament and received a gash so bad it required a skin graft to close. Imagine breaking your fibula. Your fibula. No. I'm sorry. I I mean, you wouldn't catch me doing any of his stunts anyway. But then to do that and get that injured, I probably wouldn't be back doing it ever again. But he got back into parachuting and using a wingsuit and made his way to Mount Xiangling, China. This time he flew through a 59-foot crack in the mountain. Attempting this is incredibly dangerous, so much so that this stunt is called the flying dagger. Like, it's essentially threading through a needle hole. And he's done so much more, like jumping from Seattle's Space Needle, the Eiffel Tower, and the Christ the Redeemer statue. So if you want to see him risk his life, it's all over YouTube, online, etc. You can see him do the flying dagger stunt. You can see him land on a bridge. It's crazy. Crazy. On the flip side, not everyone who jumps from the Empire State Building is doing it for fun or fame. So we're going to take a quick break here, and I will be back with some unfortunate decisions and some hauntings. Okay, so as I'm sure you can guess, I am going to talk about a couple suicides. 
So if, you know, that makes you uncomfortable, I would, you know, take a break and tune in next week for a different episode. But in 1979, a 29-year-old woman named Elvira Adams lost her job and had to live off a $100 welfare check each month. Her landlord was threatening to evict her and her 10-year-old son for not paying rent. She was in such a deep depression, she decided to end her life by jumping off the Empire State Building on December 2nd. That Sunday evening, she climbed to the 86th floor, walked out onto the observation deck, climbed over the 10-foot fence, and jumped. However, instead of falling over a 1,000 feet to her death, a 30-mile-per-hour gust of wind blew Elvira's body back onto a 2.5-foot ledge on the 85th floor of the Empire State Building. Security guard Frank Clark heard her moaning on the ledge from a broken hip and pulled her into the building. She was immediately taken to Bellevue Hospital, where she was placed under psychiatric care. Elvira was taken care of physically, and I do hope she found help for her mental pain as well, but I don't know what happened to her after she survived her jump, but while in the hospital, she was interviewed by the media, and she's quoted saying, quote, all I remember is the pain. I was in so much pain that I wasn't afraid. I'm not sure if the wind pushed me back or pushed me off, unquote, and while discussing the lights in Manhattan at night, she said, quote, they were so pretty. I wanted to reach out and touch them, unquote. Clearly, she was not feeling well mentally. And I believe she, you know, got the help she needed and lived a full life after that. But not everyone who would leap off the building would have the same fate as Elvira. There have been at least 30 suicides from jumping off the Empire State Building. I believe the most recent being in 2010. However, the most well-known is that of Evelyn McHale on May 1st, 1947. Evelyn was born on September 20th, 1923 in Berkeley, California. She was one of eight And when her parents divorced, all the kids moved to New York City to live with her dad. In high school, she was part of the Women's Army Corps in Missouri, but eventually moved back to New York City to live with one of her brothers and her sister-in-law. She worked as a bookkeeper where she met her fiancé, Barry Rhodes. Barry had been discharged from the Air Force, and after dating a bit, they were to get married at Barry's brother's house in Troy, New York. A town I had never heard of until Kentucky Derby Week when I learned that Troy, New York used to have a professional baseball team called the Troy Tro- <laughs> the Troy Trojans 
from 1879 to 1882. I laugh because my cousin's name is Troy Jordan, and I almost said that instead of Troy Trojans. What a tongue twister. Anyway, Evelyn and Barry's wedding was set for June of 1947. Not much is known about the events leading up to her jump, but the morning of May 1st, she made her way to the observation deck, hung up her coat on the railing, and wrote a note she left with her coat, saying, quote, I don't want anyone in or out of my family to see any part of me. Could you destroy my body by cremation? I beg of you and my family, don't have any service for me or remembrance for me. My fiancé asked me to marry him in June. I don't think I would make a good wife for anyone. He is much better off without me. Tell my father I have too many of my mother's tendencies. Unquote. She walked up to the ledge of the observation deck and jumped. She landed on her back on a parked United Nations limousine. And every jumping case I've read about, bystanders say the impact completely just destroys the body. But somehow, Evelyn's body survived the jump, even though she died. A photography student named Robert Wyless rushed over to her body and snapped one of the most infamous photos ever taken. The photo was so popular, the New York Times dubbed it the most beautiful suicide. I am going to post the photo on Instagram, but if you rather, you know, stay clear of the photo, it is of Evelyn laying on her back on top of the limousine, her feet are crossed at the ankles, her left hand on her chest holding her pearls, and she honestly just looks like she could be sleeping or taking a nap amongst the crumbled steel of the limo. So even though, you know, I would not say the photo is graphic by any means, it is, you know, a crime scene. Not long after her death, the Empire State Building placed a 10-foot fence around the observation deck. Though we know that doesn't prevent suicide, but it does seem to be a deterrent, which is good. That 10-foot fence was placed there not only because of Evelyn's suicide, but there were, I think, seven suicides in 1947. Like, there was an extreme amount where the owners of the building felt it necessary to at least deter people from jumping. The first suicide off the Empire State Building was before the building was even completed. A fired worker jumped from the 58th floor down an elevator shaft to his death. And that is not even the first death to strike the Empire State Building. We've all seen the iconic photography lunch atop a skyscraper. 
that photo of 11 men sitting across a steel beam thousands of feet in the air with Central Park in the background. And even though that photo was taken during the construction of Rockefeller Center in 1932, not the Empire State Building, it is the perfect vision of what the workers looked like for building the Empire State Building. Again, that photo of those 11 men eating lunch on a steel beam high in the air was taken a year after the Empire State Building was complete. So you can imagine that it's that view, however, higher in the air for the Empire State Building. And again, you wouldn't catch me up there at all. I would never, ever, ever walk on a steel beam without a harness or anything, let alone sit and eat lunch, let alone straddle a steel beam to take a photo of people eating lunch. It's crazy just to be up there open air willy-nilly. Where are the safety precautions? Hell no. And during the 13 months it took to build the Empire State Building, five workers died. Either they accidentally slipped and fell, or they were struck by heavy machinery or materials like a steel beam. And even though there are only five recorded worker deaths, some believe the death toll could be in the hundreds. Building anything at that point was extremely dangerous and difficult, and having such a huge project like the Empire State Building and doing it in such a short amount of time, only having five deaths is kind of unheard of. So I think that's why some historians are like, no, there were a lot more deaths. These are just the five recorded. Unfortunately, the tragedy doesn't stop there. On the sidewalk, just outside the Empire State Building on August 4th, 2012, 58-year-old Jeffrey Johnson emerged from hiding behind a van. He pulled a handgun on his co-worker and shot 41-year-old Stephen Ercolino in the head. When Stephen fell, Jeffrey stood over his victim and shot him four more times. Jeffrey was laid off from his job as, as a clothing designer a year prior to this. He blamed Stephen for his troubles, though it's not very clear why. And Jeffrey was on the verge of being evicted when he committed this murder. After he murdered his co-worker, he hid his handgun in his briefcase. But you're in downtown Manhattan, in New York City, right outside the Empire State Building. There were plenty of witnesses to this murder. A nearby construction worker followed Jeffrey as he fled, and the construction worker alerted police standing nearby. The police confronted Jeffrey, who raised his weapon at the police. The officers fired 16 rounds at Jeffrey, killing him and injuring nine bystanders. Nine. As of 2017, a few victims brought a lawsuit against the NYPD, though I don't know what came of the lawsuit. I bet they settled outside of court. But more training for police, because what the fuck? 
I understand that a gun was pulled on you, but you can't just be willy nilly is the word of the day, but you can't just be firing willy nilly into the busy streets of Manhattan. You can't. So either you need to have better aim, which means you need more training, or there needs to be a new system in place because injuring nine bystanders, any one of those people could have been murdered by the NYPD. So, and again, this is 2012, so this isn't that long ago. So get your shit together. How about that? Before I get into these hauntings, I do want to say if you or someone you know are in the United States and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please call or text 988. It's the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, formerly known as the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. They provide free and confidential emotional support 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. So please call or text 988 if you or someone you know needs help. Okay, so ghosts, the paranormal, spooky, spooky, Empire State Building, spooky. The most notable ghost at the Empire State Building is of a woman that wanders the 86th observation deck. As you can imagine, many believe this ghost is of Evelyn McHale, but it could very well be any other woman who took her life jumping from the 86th floor. The most common occurrence is people will witness this ghost, like person, jump to her death, but later that same day, the woman will run into the ghostly woman in the restroom, touching up her makeup in the mirror. So there have been accounts of, you know, women using the restroom, seeing this figure with red lipstick, touching up her makeup in the mirror. They'll leave the bathroom being like, what the fuck? What is that? What's going on? They'll see her run past them, run through the fence, and jump off the building. And then if you stay long enough, you may see her back in the bathroom, touching up her makeup. And I think part of the reason why they think it's Evelyn McHale is because some witness said that she, the ghost said to her that she was upset about her husband's death in the war or something about World War II, even though it wasn't very clear. And the fact that the ghost runs through the 10-foot fence makes people believe that the person who jumped, jumped before the fence was there. So I think that's why people think it's Evelyn McHale, even though her husband did not die in the war. But that may be the only ghost seen wandering the famous building, but that is not the only paranormal occurrence. The Lifetime Movie Network has a TV show called The Ghost Inside My Child that chronicles stories from children that have memories of others from the past as if they had once lived these lives. So whether you believe in reincarnation or not, the in-depth knowledge some of these young, young kids have about the death of this one person 
it really makes you think. It makes you ponder. It makes you wonder, is my child a dead ghost? <laughs> Not a dead ghost. I mean, reincarnation, or is this, there's a ghost inside my child? I don't know. In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Claire, an eight-year-old, was terrified to fly with her mom to visit relatives. When her mom asked her why she was so scared, even though she had never been on a plane before, Claire explained that when she was working in a cubicle in the Empire State Building, a plane had crashed into her floor and that the wing of the plane had crashed into her cubicle. Claire's mom was extremely confused, as any mom would be if her 8-year-old is telling her about something that she's never heard of. Her 8-year-old daughter is explaining in detail a crash that she's not only never heard of, but I would say most of society has never heard of. Claire described the period clothing worn by everyone in the office and herself, She remembered the name Rose. She remembered being there, but doesn't remember anything after the crash. So the mom did her research, and sure enough, she found that a bomber had crashed into the Empire State Building in 1945. And this eight-year-old is recounting an event that happened 65 years prior. Claire didn't have any memories outside of the crash, so her and her mom decided to go to New York City and see the Empire State Building, hoping that it would help Claire remember other information about the woman who Claire believes she is, or Claire believes she has her memories of. When they arrived to the Empire State Building, they weren't allowed to visit the 79th floor, So they stopped by the 86th observation deck. There's the history of the building of the Empire State Building, but absolutely nothing about the plane crash. No memorial with victims' names. Nothing. So they did some more research. And they were able to find someone some names outside of the three men who died flying the plane. So some of the names were Mary Kadzirska, Anna Gerlich, Patricia, Betty Lou Oliver, and Margaret Mullins. Claire resonated with the name Anna Gerlach, Gerlich, whose mother's name was Rose. And Anna had two children. So when they read into Anna's story, Anna had died instantly on impact. And after going through all the history and learning that Claire was having memories about Anna's life, she was no longer terrified of flying. Even if she continues to have these dreams and memories about this crash. Now, it's hard to believe children when they say outlandish outlandish stuff like this, but Claire was eight when she had these memories, or at least when the memories started to form, or dreams. 
I didn't know about this crash until doing research about the Empire State Building. I would bet most people don't know about this plane crash, especially if you didn't grow up in New York City. So there's very little or no information about the crash even at the location of the incident. So it's not like this eight-year-old was watching some sort of news or history channel about the crash. Like, it's just strange, paranormal, you would say. Even when I have watched about it, never mentioned victims' names or some of the other details Claire knew, like the woman that she was having memories about. She was like, yeah, the name Rose stands out. This woman has kids. She has red hair. And then when they were doing research, they also found out that Anna was an immigrant from Ireland. So doesn't prove she had red hair, but she most likely had red hair. So is reincarnation what happens after you die? We don't know. I don't know. But we'll find out someday. Maybe some kid one day in the future will be like, yeah, I have memories of this kid sitting in New York City doing a podcast about the Empire State Building. How meta would that be? That'd be so fun. Maybe the podcast will still be around at that point. But if you visit the Empire State Building and see a ghostly woman with red lipstick who runs through the fenced off area and takes a jump, let me know at hauntedhometownspodcast at gmail.com or send me any paranormal experiences you may have. Could be anything from an alligator coughing up a 1902 locket with a picture of your grandmother inside to meeting a creature on the dark side of the moon that barks like a dog. Let me know. And thank you all for joining me this week. And make sure you check out the socials for photos related to this episode and every episode, as well as guest info and upcoming news. Please give the podcast a five-star review and leave a compliment and share it with every single person you meet today. Love y'all, and I'll meet you back here in a week because everyone loves a ghost story. The theme song is by Tyer. Follow him on social media at Queer Popstar. And go check out his music streaming anywhere. T-H-A-I-R. The artwork is by Pepe Munoz. Follow him on Instagram at p.e.p.e.munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. I got my information from Wikipedia, City Signal, All That's Interesting, The New York Times, AP News, The History Channel, and Bowery Boys History.